0: Hello everyone, this is the next installment in our Low Oil Price mini-podcast series. Today we'll be looking specifically at payment defaults, remedies for the same, and steps which parties can take to avoid the splintering of their joint ventures. I'm Magland Brigier, a senior associate in our international arbitration practice based here in London. I'm very fortunate to be here with Paula Hodges QC, who heads up our global arbitration practice and has a wealth of experience in managing oil and gas and joint operating agreement disputes. Paula, let's kick off with the burning question here. Are we already seeing JOA disputes about payment of cash calls or other funding requests crystallize as a
1: result of the recent drop in oil prices? Well, thank you, Magalon. The short answer to your questions is that it's still early days. We are getting a lot of queries coming in from clients regarding the options available to them to challenge cash calls or how to respond to such challenges. But at this stage, we are not seeing those queries crystallize into formal disputes. And I think all parties are looking to navigate the consequences of COVID-19, as well as the drop in oil prices, often trying to work together to avoid splintering their joint ventures. And if we've learned anything from the aftermath of the global financial crisis and the 2014 drop in oil prices, it's quite possible that once the dust settles, parties will no doubt look to resolve any significant outstanding disputes through some form of formal process, but we are not there yet.
0: I mean, as we all know, the JV party agreements to share in the cost of joint operations is one of the most critical obligations underpinning any JV arrangement. This is commonly referred to as the pay now dispute later principle. Applied in practice, this translates into the operator issuing cash calls or other funding requests. JV parties then meet those funding obligations, even where they take the view that these calls can and should be challenged. They will then dispute the cash calls at a later stage. The Pay Now Dispute Later principle exists to ensure that payments are made in a timely manner to avoid affecting the efficient implementation of approved works. In practice, though, Paula, are we seeing or are likely to see pushback on this Pay Now
1: Dispute Later principle? If parties become increasingly cash strapped, I expect that the Pay Now Dispute Later principle will come under significant strain with parties increasingly disputing the validity of the contributions requested. And what are the grounds for
0: challenging cash calls which we can expect to see?
1: Over the years, I have seen many different grounds used for challenging cash calls. Common arguments include that the payments requested are not a genuine pre-estimate of costs, that the cash calls have not been made in compliance with the accounting procedure, or that the proper approval processes have not been followed or obtained. Obviously the strength of these arguments will very much depend on the underlying facts and the contractual documents.
0: From an operator perspective, this is obviously not ideal, particularly if refusal to comply with a funding request is likely to delay operations. Paula, is there anything operators can do to resist or minimize the likelihood of these challenges occurring?
1: Yes, absolutely. In the current climate, especially, it will be important for operators to be robust in their assessment of the cash calls to be made, particularly as parties will be even more sensitive to budget overruns than they are in normal times. To shield themselves from these arguments and minimise the risks of contributions being contested, operators will need to be particularly vigilant in complying with the formal work programme and budget and authorizations for expenditure processes set out in their JOAs.
0: Out of an abundance of caution, would you recommend that operators seek approval for all expenditures to avoid any challenges down the line?
1: Now that's a difficult question and one which should really be asked on a case-by-case basis. Naturally, obtaining a formal consent for an expenditure will help to shield the operator from later challenges regarding recoverability. However, from a practical perspective, asking for consent may also hinder or delay operations if that consent is not obtained or at least not obtained promptly. And that may be completely unnecessary if the contract did not require consent to be obtained in the first place. There is a delicate balance to be struck for operators in normal times, but even more so now where parties are facing restraints on their cash flow between pursuing an approved budget item and exercising their broadest contractual discretion in terms of budget overruns on the one hand and seeking approval for individual expenditures on the other.
0: That makes sense. If a joint venture party challenges the cash calls made by an operator and refuses to pay them, what are the operator and the other JV party's options?
1: In these scenarios, parties will have a choice between exercising the contractual remedies for non-payment provided in their joint operating agreements or working together through negotiations to find alternative solutions that work with parties. The contractual consequences for a failure by a party to meet its financial contributions under JOAs are generally quite severe. The severity of the consequences reflects the potential harm caused by non-payment by one party to the joint operations as a whole. As most of our listeners will know, where one party fails to meet their cash calls or other payment obligations, the other non-defaulting parties will be required under the JOA to bear the defaulting party's share of the costs. Remedies available to the non-defaulting parties are generally staggered and will apply where the defaulting party fails to remedy their payment default within the cure period, which follows notice of the default being given. What
0: are some of the initial sanctions we would typically expect to see?
1: In the initial stages, those sanctions may include the non-paying party being deprived of its right to information and participating in the JV. And then also, it it may lose its share of production. Given recent shortages of storage capacity, of course, and the rising cost of storage, production entitlement may have lost some of its appeal as a remedy for default.
0: And of course, ultimately, a persistent and unremedied default can lead to even stricter remedies, including a potential forfeiture with or without compensation by the defaulting party of its participating interest to non-defaulting parties.
1: That's right. And that is, of course, a much more draconian remedy.
0: Although, of course, Paula, there is a longstanding debate on the enforceability of these forfeiture clauses, right?
1: Absolutely right. Although that question alone could be the subject of its own podcast. But the short answer is we are not certain, as a matter of English law, whether forfeiture clauses are definitely enforceable. The recent findings in the case of Cavendish v. MacDessy, which went up to the Supreme Court in 2015, provide some comfort that these clauses might be upheld. But ultimately, this will depend on the contractual wording of the clause. Because of this uncertainty around the impossibility of forfeiture clauses, it is not uncommon to find alternative remedies to forfeiture in JOAs. For example, buyout provisions enabling non-defaulting parties to buy out the defaulting party's participating interest at an undervalue, or withering provisions which set out the participating interest the defaulting party is required to forfeit, which will usually be proportionate to the extent of that party's investment in the joint operations to date.
0: That's an interesting one. In recent years, we've also seen a rising number of defaulting parties successfully applying for injunctions to restrain operators from performing certain works or exercising the default provisions in joint operating agreements where a party has refused to meet a cash call.
1: Yes, a good example of this is the recent case of Pan Petroleum versus Yinka, where a non-operator was disputing a cash call issued by the operator and refused to pay it cash call related to the drilling of new wells, which the non-operator argued was a major modification that required unanimity under the JOA. The same non-operator successfully applied to the English courts for an injunction restraining the non-defaulting parties from exercising the default remedies under the JOA until the dispute regarding the validity of the cash call had been resolved in arbitration. It's
0: true that the English courts have demonstrated a willingness to provide these type of injunctions, particularly given the draconian nature of some of the forfeiture remedies in JOAs. Generally, what we've seen is that parties applying for these types of injunctions have needed to demonstrate, amongst other things, that the harm caused by the exercise of the default provisions would not be compensated adequately by damages. One argument that we've seen, which seems to have found particular favour with the courts is the potential operational harm that making the contribution and the operator going forward with disputed works would cause the joint
1: operations in the longer run. Of course, parties intending to apply for these types of injunctions also need to remember that they will then also need to follow through with proceedings to determine the underlying dispute, as well, of course, as giving some other security for costs incurred.
0: Now, Paula, if applying for these types of injunctions is an alternative, does that not entirely undermine the pay now and dispute
1: later principle? There is a wealth of case law reinforcing the fundamental importance of the pay now and dispute later principle. So it will be a very high bar to obtain an injunction like the one we have just discussed. On top of that, the underlying proceedings that follow the injunctions being granted can and often will prove costly and time consuming, with an end result that may not differ to the end result if the Pay now dispute later principle had been complied with. Given the current climate, parties may simply find that the best option for resolving tensions regarding funding constraints remains commercial negotiations and keeping channels of communications open with a view to finding alternative solutions which suit all parties. For example, a few years ago, when I was dealing with a similar situation, I was acting for the operator in in such a dispute. And we persuaded the counterparty to pay the disputed cash calls into an escrow agreement from which the operator could withdraw funds in relation to Important items of expenditure to keep operations going, and that worked quite well. But naturally, parties should be careful when they're having these discussions. Should always preserve their rights and make their discussions without prejudice.
0: Thank you, Paula. That was really very informative and interesting. And thank you again for your time today, and to everyone for listening. For those interested, we've also appended a brief article on this subject, which you can find below this podcast link.